remember the movie Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark? If you haven't seen the whole thing, you've probably seen clips of it on over the years. And there's this scene where Indiana Jones, he's in Cairo, Egypt, and he's running away from all these assassins. And he pushes his way through a crowd. And all, as you see on the screen, he's in this circle, surrounded by people. He can't get away. And there's this sword man in the back. And in that scene, the swordsman doing all this stuff with his sword. And he's like clearly a master of the sword. And Indiana Jones doesn't have a sword or anything. So at this point, if you've never seen the movie before, you're thinking to yourself, well, it's probably going to be like an epic showdown. Maybe he'll run away, but it's probably going to be an epic showdown between the swordsman and Indiana Jones. But suddenly, Indiana Jones remembers something. He's like, oh, wait, I have a pistol. He pulls the pistol out, shoots the swordsman, turns around and walks away like nothing happened. Well, it's supposed to be a comedic moment in the movie, but in a strange way, it reminds me a little bit about the account in 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath. Think about what happens. You have this giant, big giant with all this armor and these powerful weapons and David's far away and he takes him out with the sling and one stone. You know, we love underdog stories. Think about a lot of the movies in the famous movie series. Think about the Rocky films. In every single Rocky film, Rocky's the little guy, right? His opponent is a lot bigger than him, a lot taller than him, a lot stronger than him. And he has to overcome these obstacles to defeat his foe in every single movie. Or if you want a more lighthearted example, maybe the movie A Christmas Story. Where every single day Ralphie goes home from school and there's this mean bully named Scott Farkas. Who has it in for him and knocks him down every single day. There he is. And um, finally Ralphie just has enough of it and takes the kid out. And... Um, even unchurched people, including Christians and unchristians, the metaphor of David versus of Goliath is a familiar metaphor in our culture. A lot of times, th this account of David and Goliath is spoken of metaphorically, where we talk about Goliath being this big obstacle we have to overcome. I even recently saw there was a car racing video game, and guess what they called the hardest, longest, most difficult race in the video game? They called it Goliath. So the idea of Goliath being this giant obstacle that the little guy has to overcome is a familiar theme in our culture that we, we've kind of distilled in our language. We understand the idea of little guy versus big guy or versus Goliath. But I think as we dig in today's passage, we're going to recognize that this account is not about human effort overcoming a big obstacle. Although that's often the lesson people take from this account of David versus Goliath. It is not about human effort against obstacles. We're going to continue our mini-series today through the life of David, a man after God's heart. And I think like David, we too have our struggles. We too have our obstacles, our Goliaths, metaphorically speaking, in our lives. They could be financial issues. They could be relational issues. They could be sin struggles. Things that seem impossible for us to overcome by our own efforts. But we tend to view the story of David versus Goliath. And the, at the same time, the challenges and obstacles in our lives in a very self-focused way. It's about us trying hard. It's about us overcoming obstacles. Quite often... The battles that we're facing, we're not even facing the right battles. And we're not using the right weapons that the Lord gives us. What I believe today's passage in 1 Samuel chapter 17 teaches us is that because God is faithful and all-powerful, the victorious follow his lead into battle. Because God is faithful 
and all-powerful, the victorious follow his lead into battle. So I believe the question that today's passage answers is, what do the lives of the victorious look like? And I believe there's nine characteristics that we see in today's passage, 1 Samuel 17, on the lives of the victorious. So like I said, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a long chapter. We won't read all of it, but we're going to read it in pieces as we go through those nine characteristics. Let's begin in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Socha and Azekah in Ephesdanim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not a servant of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then there will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took a stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of, to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring them some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment at the, as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. 
So the first characteristic I believe we see in chapter 17 is the victorious wait for God's timing and are faithful what, with what God has entrusted to their care. The victorious wait for God's timing and are faithful with what God has entrusted to their care. Now last week, Pastor Marv took us through the account of David when Samuel came to his father Jesse and all David's brothers passed before him. And where was David? He was out tending sheep. So finally, um, Jesse sends for David. David passes before Samuel and Samuel's like, that's the guy. He's the one. He's going to be the next king. Right? He anoints him with oil and what does he do to him? He's actually, actually when it's up happening, as we pick up in today's chapter, what would you think would have happened? Well, he's been anointed to be the next king. He'd probably go off with Samuel, right? And he'll probably like get a prince's treatment and get a special education, special clothing, and all kinds of training to be ready to be the king. That's not what happens. We pick up here in chapter 17, and what is he doing? Tending sheep. He's probably the best smelling sheep herder on the planet at that time after being anointed. But there he is, tending sheep again after he's already been anointed to be the king of Israel. I wonder that maybe God was using those humble circumstances, that time of waiting and time of preparation, to prepare him to be the king of Israel. David didn't know it. He had a lot more waiting than Goliath before he would become the king of Israel. But God was using that time and those humble circumstances. And we can see in this passage some details that show that David was being faithful with what God had put in his hands at that time in his life. There's a couple extraneous details or that would seem extraneous to me. In verse 20, it says he leaves his sheep in the care of a keeper. It gives us that special detail. And then verse 22, it says when he arrives at that valley of Allah where the armies are gathered, he left provisions in the care of a keeper of baggage before he goes over and talks to his brother. Those seem extraneous, but I think the reason that they are included in this account is because the narrator is trying to make it clear that David is faithful with the things that he was responsible for. Even though he was expecting and should have maybe had anticipated some point being the king of Israel, he was being faithful guarding a bunch of livestock. He was being faithful taking a bunch of snacks to his brothers. That even though um, he had more grand things in his future, he was being faithful with the humble things that God had had in his hands at that moment in his life. Do you ever find yourself in a time of waiting? Maybe uh, you're a student and you, you've just had it with classes. You got more to go and you're tired of spending money to work a full-time job and you want to be done and you just want to get on to what God has next in your life. Maybe you're waiting for a promotion. Maybe you're waiting for certain changes in your life that are totally out of control. Um, you can identify a little bit maybe with David then. But the question I would ask you, is God calling you to be faithful with what he's entrusted to in your care in this season of your life? If you're one of those that find yourself in a time of waiting. Let's read on in verse 24 to 30. We read the longest passage, so the rest will be a little bit shorter after this. <laughs> Verses 24 to 30. All of the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. 
And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard what he, when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So the second characteristic I believe we see in this passage is that the victorious are only obligated to obey the voice of God. The victorious are only obligated to obey the voice of God. You know, David, he does ask what will be done for the one that kills Goliath. And he doesn't mention it afterwards. You see, fame and wealth are not what arouse the passions of David. His, intent, his intention is to deal with the one that defies the army of the living God. His focus and his attention are on God's glory. But then there comes a test. Think about what happens. So he's all mad about Goliath. And suddenly his brother, his older brother, humiliates him and insults him and implies all sorts of ill motives, accuses him of not leaving the sheep in care. I don't know, if I was... Um, David in that moment, you know, I might have responded in a harsh way. I might have been like, you know what, I left the sheep with so-and-so. And the only reason I'm here is because my, our dad sent us. You know, so that you can stand, all, stand around all day with your finger in your nose, you know, listening to Goliath insult you and insult the armies of Israel. So tell you what, I don't want to get in your way because you're not fighting a battle anyway. You're just standing around like a bunch of losers. I'm going to take my cheese and I'm going to go back home. That's what I would have probably done if I had been insulted and publicly humiliated in that sort of way. But notice that David doesn't stoop to his brother's level. He doesn't even return an insult. He answers him briefly and it says he turns away and begins talking to another. See, when God has entrusted something to your care or called you to a specific work, there's always the temptation to listen to critical voices. And to stop doing what God has called you to do. You see, David could have turned away from the battle that the Lord had called him to. And turned his attention to having an argument and a dispute with his brother. And then just took in his stuff and gone home. But he did not allow the critical voices of others to distract him from what God had called him to do. You know, a number of years ago, there was a mentor that challenged me. That he knew that I could be a bit of a people pleaser. And he said to me, Mike... You're not obligated to anybody but God. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. He's like, Mike, Mike, Mike. You're not obligated to anyone but God. Now, what he meant was he didn't mean that you're not supposed to honor your commitments. He didn't mean that you're not supposed to obey certain chains of command and things like that. He didn't mean that you're not supposed to act justly or you're supposed to be harsher people. But his point was you don't have an obligation to live up to the demands of people who don't have a right to demand things from you. If someone's upset with you, you are not obligated to make them feel better about you, your words, or your deeds. Your only obligation is to God. If God calls you to deal with what that person's saying, that's a different story. But your obligation 
is to God. And when I started to internalize that truth, I'm like, wow, I really am only obligated to God. If someone's angry with me, it doesn't mean that I am now under their wrath and I have to somehow appease them and somehow get them to feel better about me. I'm only obligated to God. I like what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I, a try, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So let's pick up back in verses 31 to 37. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. I believe the third characteristic we see is the victorious remember the past deeds of God. The victorious remember the past deeds of God. Last week, Pastor Marv, when he took us through chapter 16, he said David's trust in God allowed him to live without fear. He said that this type of trust can only come through experience and intentional relationship building. Experience and intentional relationship building. Now where did David's faith come from? His confidence. I think it's very significant. It's easy to swish right past this. That David attributed his success against the lion and against the bear as God's intervention. Now I highly doubt David was trying to defend them. And an angel came down and grabbed his arm. And magically defeated the bear and defeated the lion. He was like... Wow, thanks God. I have have an idea that he probably, you know, used the skills and the abilities that God gave him. Yet he was very quick to not attribute his success to his own efforts. To how hard he trained. To how much preparation and work he did to be good. To be able to defeat the lion and the bear. In that time of being alone with God, he learned to make a habit out of crediting God for those successes in his past life. I think that's where his faith came from. You see, our human nature, when we look back on our lives, we say things like, I passed that test. I worked hard and got that promotion. I built this thing over here. I did this. I practiced and trained really, really hard. But quite often, we're prone to not give God glory and give credit for the successes in our past life, in our early life. We, we are quick to blame him when things go wrong, right? We're quick to blame God when things don't work out or blame others. But we're very slow to credit God for the past successes in our life. Because there's part of us, it's a pride aspect of pride that wants to feel good and feel justified 
in how we use what God has given us. But David did not allow that. David, even as a very young man, attributed the accomplishments that he did to the Lord. You know, if we're quick to credit God for past victories, I believe that that gives us faith to trust him in the present. The fourth characteristic we see is the victorious take a step of faith when others lack courage. The victorious take a step of faith when others lack courage. See, David was confident in the Lord's ability to deliver him. So much so that not just that he would acknowledge it in his mind, that he'd be willing to take a step of faith based on that inner conviction that he had. I think it's very easy for us to take the concept of faith in God and turn it into just a mental exercise where we, we say, I trust God, I trust God, and it's a mantra we tell ourselves to get through some difficulty or some time in life. And then we look back and say, God got me through. And he does, and he often does. But quite often in those situations, God wants to do more than get you through to allow you to survive. He is often calling you to take a step of faith in those circumstances. See, God leads us to take faith-filled risks. Let's continue reading on the verse 38 and 40. Saul, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The fifth characteristic I believe we see is the victorious use the weapons the Lord sanctions. The victorious use the weapons that the Lord sanctions. See, David did not feel compelled to use Saul's armor and weapons. He knew that he had never tested that gear before. He wasn't familiar with it. A more insecure person might have said, well, sure, I'll take those and I'll put them on and hopefully I can figure out how to con connect the front to the back and uh, what to do with this weapon. But David was secure enough in his strengths and his weaknesses to be blatantly honest about what he was able to do and what he had no experience doing. And God gave him and helped him develop the skill of using a sling. You know, David says in one of his psalms, he trains my hands for battle. And David was content to use the skill that God had developed in his life. Paul says in Ephesians 6, for us to put on the armor of God, that the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he implores the believers to always then pray in the spirit. The thing is, is that our weapons, when, it, when we face battles, are these things of the armor of God the first things we go to? Do we have the peace of the gospel in our hearts? Do we, do we rest in the righteousness that's been given to us through Jesus? Do we, are we knowledgeable? Are we aware of his word? And do we apply it to the situations in our lives? Do we treat the armor of God like it's the first thing we have? Or do we treat it as something we go to when all of our weapons, all of our arguments fail? 
The sixth characteristic we see is that the victorious discern the flaws in conventional wisdom. The victorious discern the flaws in conventional wisdom. You know, God calls us to take steps of faith. Sometimes those steps of faith seem absolutely ridiculous. Think back to when Joshua led the Israelites to march around Jericho. There was nothing that they did that made any sense from a military strategy. We learned that uh, last month when we were going through the life of Joshua. It didn't make any sense, and God was trying to hammer into the Israelites' heads that, look, this victory is not because you have a strategy that's good. Your victory is because you're obeying me. I'm going to give you the victory. Yet we know that all wisdom from God, and there's a, there's a, mis- there's a thing that we sometimes assume that somehow that the wisdom of the world makes a whole lot of sense. That conventional wisdom makes total sense most of the time, and we just have to take steps of faith and do things that don't make any sense. Well, quite often, the wisdom of the world is quite foolish, and it's easy to spot, and it's easy to see, because all wisdom is from God. You know, I was thinking back to a good example. Uh, in the American Revolution, I remember learning in school how the, uh, the Continental, uh, whatever they call it, the American Army was facing the British Army, and the British Army, they would all like line up like this in a field, and you know, in a straight line, and, and they'd march out in the middle of the field and just start shooting. And what would the Americans do? They would like hide behind trees and duck and dive and try to like actually avoid being shot. Wow, who would have thought that could be an effective military strategy? It was a pretty obvious weakness that the Americans were able to exploit in that war. See, the conventional wisdom doesn't always make a lot of sense. You know, if you do a casual reading of David versus Goliath, just like that scene with um, the swordsman, if the guy has a gun and you got a sword, doesn't matter how good you are with that sword, if the guy 30 feet away has a weapon that can hit you, you're in trouble, right? It wasn't like the bow and arrow weren't weapons that were known about in that time. We will find out in future chapters. There's a scene where Jonathan is shooting arrows as a signal to David. Even the sling and Stones are something that are very familiar in that time and place. If you jump back a little bit into the time of the judges, in verse chapter 20 it says, Among these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, like me, and everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So even just using conventional wisdom, you can see the obvious flaws in Goliath's confidence in himself. Throughout human history, Difference makers are often people who find better ways of doing things. And there really are two extremes we should avoid as followers of Christ. The first one is to just ignore the wisdom distilled from the ages and act as if we're the first people to ever encounter problems and just have no interest in learning about the past successes and past failures and things that have been tried and things that have been found wanting. But the other extreme is to assume that the way things have always been done is best. This has implications in the church. The message never changes, but the methods must. The methods that may have worked 25 years ago that maybe didn't exist 100 years before that, those methods may not be effective at furthering the kingdom today. And so while we are always called to take the message to the ends of the earth, the methods must change. Our dedication is always to the message, and to the one who gives us the message. Let's pick back up in verse 41. 
And the Philistines moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And when the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give your dead bodies to the host of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with swords and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So the seventh characteristic we see is the victorious declare their faith in the Lord to provide. You see, because David wasn't distracted by his brother, he's fighting the right battle in the right place with the right weapons. And his response to Goliath is not to brag about himself. It is not to taunt him about what he's going to do to him. But he responds declaring that God is in charge of this victory. That this victory is the Lord's. You know, I think declaring, speaking truth strengthens our convictions. When we can know something is true, but sometimes when we speak it, it brings clarity to us. It strengthens our conviction. That's why corporate worship is so important. And why it's important that we sing and participate. Because we are physically participating. And as we sing the words, as we speak those words, they, 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 they bring clarity to us. And they strengthen our convictions to live our lives and act on them. The eighth characteristic we see is the victorious give glory to the Lord. The true victor. The victorious give glory to the Lord, the true victor. See, David did not appeal to his own or Israel's superiority. His appeal was to the Lord. He refused to brag about himself. He refused to brag about his abilities. He cited what the Lord would do. His strength and his claim was in what the Lord would do, not what he could do. He called it the Lord's battle. We see this attitude of David throughout the Psalms. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or 7.10, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Psalm 20 verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 144.1, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now, I bet you David had spent a lot of time in his life learning how to use that sling 
and, and later in his life learning how to use other weapons. And he worked really, really, really hard. Yet even the training and the practice that he did, the hard work and sacrifice he made, he credited to the Lord. He said, the Lord is the one who trains my hands for battle. Let's look at the final section we're going to look at today, verses 50 to 54. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistines and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from uh, Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The ninth and final characteristic we see is the victorious encourage others to take steps of faith. The victorious encourage others to take steps of faith. Now, we shouldn't give the Israelites too much credit here. I feel like they didn't run after the Philistines at first. They waited till David defeated Goliath. And then it says the Philistines turned and ran. And only then did the, Philist did the Israelites run after them and pursue them and take the offensive. But I do believe that seeing David's step of obedience, it emboldened them to do the same. His step of faith encouraged them because they saw God work through him and then they were emboldened to pursue after their enemy as well. Think about the times in your life where you have seen others take steps of faith. Maybe there's a time in your life you can remember when you saw someone else take a step of faith and that encouraged you to take a step of faith in your life as well. But I would like to spin that a little, little bit. If you, come, if you came to salvation of Jesus as a young age and you've been a Christian for decades, you're supposed to be the one taking the steps of faith that the younger generations see as an example. Parents, do you want to see your children take steps of faith in their lives? I would imagine the answer is yes. The question is, are they seeing it modeled by you? Are they seeing you take steps of faith in your obedience to the Lord? Are they learning from you? That, that's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for me. Does my life reflect that I'm taking steps of faith in the Lord? Or am I waiting for others to go first? And then am I willing to step? But, but if we've called on Jesus for salvation, and we're designed to grow in our walk and our relationship with him, then we need to step up. We need to be the ones that are willing to take the steps of faith so that we can be an example for the generation that precedes us. And in conclusion, we said in the beginning that because God is faithful and all-powerful, the victorious follow his lead into battle. Because God is faithful and all-powerful, the victorious follow his lead into battle. So if you and I, if we want to live a victorious life, we're going to follow the Lord's lead into battle. For his glory, not for ours. 
and we'll be confident in his power and his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for being a God who's patient with us. A God who trains our hands for battle. We praise and thank you that you know what we need best. That you're willing to put us through a time of testing and waiting in our lives. So that you can train us to be ready to step into the battles that you have for us. We pray we be faithful with whatever you've put in our hands in this time. And Lord, we pray that we would take steps of faith. I'm confident that you will provide where you lead. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.